0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
1: Joseph Newgarden takes the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Eddie Garrison, here with you in the drivehuboard.com studios. If you spent Memorial Day weekend the right way, You were obviously out at the Speedway, but hopefully you had a streaming device going as well. And if you weren't smart enough to do that, hopefully if you're driving around the city or at your barbecues, you were locked right in here at 9351075, The Fan, and more importantly to the IndyCar Radio Network for another just masterclass in broadcasting, the leader of which, Mark Jaynes, nice enough to take some time with us. First off, bravo, sir. Bravo. Another just doesn't matter where i was driving where i was at in my memorial day party weekend you guys were a part of it your entire crew it was phenomenal from start to finish and thank you again for all that you do across the board for broadcasting mark
2: well the pleasure is all ours and thank you for the kind words we we appreciate that and i'll be sure to pass that along to everyone uh, it's uh as you can imagine it's the the greatest gig in the world and uh you know we we uh used to spend our sundays our race days doing the same things that uh, that everyone was doing and uh i think we're all still very much connected to that we're also connected with uh, the responsibility that we have to do our best to make people who aren't there feel like they are and uh we're always uh we're always very satisfied i think uh, uh, when 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 the day is done and uh i know that uh, it was a very compelling race that had plenty of storylines and uh I felt we did a really good job of staying on top of those. And uh, it was uh, it was an interesting finish for sure and one for the ages. And uh, a hearty congratulations to Joseph Newgard. I mean, this is one that he has wanted for so very, very long. And uh, I know he will be a deserving champion and represent the Indianapolis 500 very, very well.
1: Mark, take us through, for those that didn't get the opportunity to listen alongside, take us through that final caution and the discussion or the lead-up on the broadcast of when you found out there was going to be a red and then ultimately a green flag right after that for one lap to win this thing how unprecedented was this type of finish in your mind and just walk us through the broadcast booth during those final moments in the lead up to green flag racing
2: well it is unprecedented for sure um, I, I, but our network director chris pollock uh, does a really good job of uh, monitoring uh, you know race control and he feeds us information and uh, he was pretty quick to tell us that there was a red flag coming and then uh, once the decision was made and the teams were informed uh, he informed us that uh, you know they were going to come off of pit road and uh, they were essentially going to get the green white and they would be off and running and we would have one lap to decide the indianapolis 500 and so um we all we all settled in and uh and got ready to to make the call and uh, did something that had never been done before i know this um it, it's not up to me uh to make those decisions and it's a good thing uh but you know that there, there are, are, are people charged with making those decisions at the end of the day, I know there were those that, that that were not necessarily in favor of the decision to throw the red flag so late with so few laps to go. And I know there have been similar situations in the past where the rulings have, have gone another way. Uh, but I know this, from our broadcast booth uh, in, in, in just off of turn number four in the media center, uh, when that red flag was announced, uh, there was a... Uh, I think a thunderous roar of applause that went through that facility, and uh, and I, I think the fans were were totally in agreement that uh, uh, that that thing should end uh, with, with given every opportunity to end uh, under green. And uh, while certainly we're there for the drivers, we're there for the teams. I think we're also we're also there for the fans and for the show. And uh, I think uh, I think all in all, uh, they 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 put on a pretty good one over the last couple of laps, no doubt.
3: Mark, what did you think of Joseph Newgarden's approach to that final lap and just the strategy that he used to obviously come out victorious? And then, as you said, talk about fans, him interacting with the fans the way that he did, (laughs) which just reminded me of probably every kid who dreams of being in that moment.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I I would suggest that perhaps moving forward uh, that they may take a good long look. At, uh, at 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 using so much of the pit lane entrance when they come off of turn four, simply because of the attenuator. And over the years, you know, Ari Lyandich and Mark Dismore are among those who've had some horrific crashes uh, with that attenuator. And I know they've made a lot of safety changes there, and that into the racetrack is is uh, certainly a lot safer. But there's also some consideration given to teams that, you know, are in the 33rd, the 32nd, the 31st pit box, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, I, I think, um, as is always the case, guys, whether it's at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway or whether it's on a road and street course, uh, drivers are going to use all of the track that they dare can until they're told not to. Uh, so, I, I think they were within the rules uh, as, as they're interpreted at this point. Uh, and if that changes, I'm sure they'll fall within those guidelines as well. But as far as the celebration, I mean, to be honest with you, when he first got out of the car, I thought he was simply going to emulate Elio and, uh, and climb the fence. And then when he went through that hole in the fence, <laughs> uh, I, I just, uh, it was a celebration unlike anything that we had ever seen at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And uh, I, I think that uh, there were also, there were all, already legions of Joseph Newgarden fans but uh, he certainly added uh, a, a few thousand more no doubt about it, with that move and uh, and, and and I commend him and it's something that uh, you know he repeatedly said that he had always intended to do and uh, I, I thought it was really cool and I, I think it, it, it's a moment that'll be relived uh, for, for years to come and rightfully so mark
1: James of the IndyCar radio network nice enough to make some time with us here on the fan midday show mark Joseph mentioned this with a sigh of relief in a lot of those post-race press conferences, how much this meant to him to finally get it done, to add maybe the final crown jewel that he might've felt like he needed to a very impressive resume to this point for the 32 year old. When you look at what he's done and just for all these drivers, what winning a Borg Warner trophy does for their career, how do you summarize or contextualize what this next step or next leap forward in new gardens career does this win mean to him?
2: Well, he's no, he's no longer going to be introduced as a, a multiple series champion who's yet to win the Indy 500. I mean, he's now Indy 500 champion Joseph Newgarden. And uh, as, as I believe what Simon Pagino said and, and others have said, I mean, it literally uh, it, it gives you immortality uh, and it also changes the way that you are introduced, and, and, and as I've said a couple of times this uh, this past month on, on the show with our good friend Bob Lovell, Indiana Sports Talk, I said, listen, uh, nobody talks about or Jr. being a six-time winner at Long Beach. He's a two-time <laughs> Indy 500 champion, and uh, but, you know, the, it, 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 it it stuck in his crawl as it sticks in everyone's crawl. The fact that he hadn't won a 500, especially with a team that has been as success- successful there as Team Penske, and uh, I, I mean I think there's just a huge sense of relief for Joseph and understandably. So if there was anyone over the last few years that you could put the label on, it's not a matter of, 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 of if, but when I think it's Joseph Dugard, And I know that, you know, he's had occasionally some struggles there, but he's also, you know, had some success there. Uh, And I just think it it further cements Joseph Dugard as an immense talent in open wheel racing and, uh, you know, we have the benefit, guys like me and Nick Yeoman and 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 Jake Query and and Michael Young. I mean, we we have the advantage of having watched this kid come up through the road to Indy uh, in the Indy Next Series, which was known in Indy Lights at the time. And uh, you know, uh, to, to watch his career develop and watch it unfold. I mean, go back to the days to where he thought his career, for all intents and purposes, had stalled when. Uh, when, you know, Sarah Fisher uh, decided to to, to move on from her race team and and pursue other business. I mean, Ed Carpenter willingly picked him up. And, uh, you know, uh, and then from there, he was offered the opportunity to race for Team Penske. And I think the rest, as they say, is history. And I think, you know, I, I remember... I stopped him one time at, at, at Long Beach in the hotel uh, after a couple of years with Team Penske, and I said, uh, "Do you ever just kind of pinch yourself and think, can can this all, you know, really be happening to a kid from Hendersonville, Tennessee?" He said, "You know, I've never not felt that way since I got to this level." He said, "I'm incredibly fortunate to do what I do, and uh, feel very, very fortunate." And I would imagine he feels even more fortunate today.
3: Mark, you talked about you know uh, being immortal when you win the Indy 500. What about Roger Penske, Team Penske, nineteenth victory? What does it take to reinvent yourself, you know, year after year to give yourself a chance to win, you know, the biggest race in the world?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know that uh, with them. I think it's a tried and true formula. I mean, uh, you know, obviously they've had turnover over the years and personnel, but uh, uh, that, you know, when, whenever people have retired or, or moved on for various reasons uh, from the organizational side, uh, you know, let's face it. I mean, Roger has always had a pretty good eye for talent. And, uh, you know, and certainly that race team is in the more than capable hands of, of Tim Sendrick, its president, who, uh, by the way, deservedly so, joins uh, Tony George in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame. And uh, I, I think, you know, the, the, the hallmark of Roger, and he'll be the first one to tell you, uh, I mean, he's the head of the snake, but it's the people that he surrounds himself with uh, that makes, you know, him so successful. And, you know, I I, I kind of like it in a bit to a guy like uh, Mike who recently retired from Duke University. I mean, I I I don't think motorsports as a whole, looks anything at all like it did when Roger Penske first got into ownership and first came to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the late 60s and then won with Mark Donahue in 1972. But the fact that he's been able to adapt and he's been able to change, I think, speaks well uh, to to Roger Penske and his organization as a whole and the people that he has surrounded himself with. I mean, To stop and think about the fact that that they pulled off the double uh, in in, in winning the Coca-Cola 600 and the Indy 500... I, I think because of the fact that the weather postponed that race by a day, I don't know that that feat has been given enough significance. But it is—it is a phenomenal feat in two of the you know top tier motorsports uh, series in the world uh, to grab the, the checkered flag in, in both of those uh, both of those races in the course of one weekend. That's amazing and might never be duplicated. If it is duplicated, it'll probably be him, I guess. Huh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no arguments here. Mark James with us on the Fan Midday Show.
0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
3: Still here in the DriveHula.com studio, I'm James Boyd here with Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison on this fine Tuesday afternoon. We have my buddy Alex Kennedy. He is the chief content officer. At Basketball News, very fancy name. He's. I was telling him off the air, Alex, you got it out the mud. You've uh, been rising through the ranks for years now. I've been reading your stuff for about 10 years, I was telling them. How you doing, my friend?
4: I appreciate the kind words. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
3: Thanks for making the time. You know, we saw a very unique series go down where you have history on either side, right? You got one team trying to become the first team to come back from an 0-3 deficit in the NBA, the other team that did end up winning the Miami Heat coming second to seed to get to the finals. What were your takeaways from Game 7, and particularly maybe what does Boston do with Jalen Brown now?
4: Yeah, you know, I I think uh, it's got to be frustrating for Celtics fans. I think that's probably the worst way for the series to go down, just giving them hope and then ripping it away if you're a fan. Uh, You know, you feel like you have all this momentum and you're about to make history on your home court, and and then that happens. That's got to be brutal. Um, You know, I think it's tough to kind of judge with Jason Tatum, rolling his ankle, you know, early on. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, Jalen Brown was was pretty awful throughout the entire series, and, and there's no question uh, he did not step up last night. I think you, you want to see him take over that game and, you know, really put the team on his back whenever uh, Tatum gets hurt early. Uh, and I know we saw he became the first player in NBA history to have uh, eight turnovers eight missed threes and shoot under uh, 40% in the game seven, uh, which uh, it's a really brutal game for him. Um, You know, I think Brian Windhurst reported uh, earlier today that the Celtics are expected to um, give him an extension. So I think they're going to keep him. And I think that makes sense. You know, you don't want to overreact and break up this core and um, you know, make too many changes when this team does have so much talent and, and they could be back. And we've, we've seen this team make an NBA finals run. You know, we've seen this team go very, very deep in the playoffs multiple times now. So I think it makes, it makes sense to bring this core back, um, you know, maybe try to add some pieces uh, around the core. you know, some, some pieces along the edges, uh, I, I think that makes more sense than kind of blowing it up. Um, but I understand Celtics fans being frustrated with Jay LeBron, uh, and there's no question, you know, he struggled not only last night but uh, in that series.
3: So here's my question because I know I'm on the same page as you. You probably can't break this up because they're young, they're all NBA, and the grass is not always greener. I know that for sure. But as far as an extension, do you give him – the supermax—that's that's the only stipulation that maybe makes it more difficult, at least in my mind. If I'm, you know, Celtics ownership or management, I'm thinking to myself, how do we acquire other pieces and get ourselves to be better as a team? If I'm selling out this money to this guy who is not the best player on my team.
4: Yeah, I think that's where those conversations with Brown's camp are going to be interesting because you know you you can point to this series now and, and maybe say, hey you know, we can't give the Supermax. Uh, we need to do XYZ uh, and kind of pitch it to them that this going to allow them to make other changes and bring in more talent and, you know, kind of sell it that way. Because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really tough after a series like that to, you know, sell a, a Supermax extension for, for a player. Um, you know, Brown was one of the guys that everyone talked about whenever the NBA's new extension rules came out and the new CBA where you can now have uh, the, the starting salary – uh, kind of jump up uh, in year one to 140% raise instead of 120% raise. You know, there's less limits on. Uh, oh, you can only have one player with a super max, like things like that. Everyone thought Brown would be one of the guys that benefit most from those rules, but uh, it's possible that with some of his struggles throughout the season, and then. Especially in this series, maybe there is no super supermax uh, in his future. So it'll be interesting. You know, I'm curious to see how those conversations go between the two sides. Because if you're Brown, you know your argument is, you know, I've been a fantastic player this league. There are teams out there that would probably give me that Supermax. max. Um, you know, he definitely has a case for it, but you can also understand if Boston doesn't want to give it to him.
1: Alex Kennedy of BasketballNews.com, making some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Alex on the halftime coverage on Inside the NBA, Shaq had mentioned, and I I know he played in a wildly different era, but he mentioned that if he was one of the leaders on this team and he looked around at his guys and they were shooting O of 10 or whatever from beyond the arc, that he would go up to them in a timeout huddle, say, Next one either takes a three, I'm punching you in the face. Now, obviously, (laughs) that's so Shaq, that that is the extreme end of things, but. Boston shoots nine of forty-two in Game Seven from beyond the arc, twenty-one percent. Is it possible in today's NBA, with how important three-point shooting is in the association right now, for a team to really have a come together moment? Realize, you know what? Unless we're really open, maybe we shouldn't be jacking up as many triples as we did tonight.
4: Yeah, it's tough because on on one hand, uh, you know that's a, a perfectly reasonable take. On the other hand, you know, I think you keep thinking, hey, we've been a great shooting team all season long. We have to keep shooting because uh, especially with Miami pulling away, that's what gets back in this game. Um, I don't think, you know, you're you're never going to win a game uh, or to extremely extremely hard to win a playoff game whenever you're shooting 21 percent from three and the other team shooting 50 percent. But I think abandoning the three altogether is very tough in this day and age. Um it's funny a buddy of mine is a Celtics fan, and he was uh texting me last night and he was like, There's no way the Cel- on one hand I think there's no way the Celtics can shoot under thirty percent for the rest of this game. It was a halftime. And he's like, But I'm terrified that they will and then sure enough, uh you know, it's exactly what happened. They they never really got it going and I, I'm so impressed with Miami shooters by the way. The fact that they, you know, shot fifty percent and so many of those threes were, you know, from role players or you know, I know last night Jimmy Butler said, I don't really call those guys role players, I just call my teammates uh, because everyone's been stepping up at different times. Uh, you know, those guys shot incredibly well. Caleb Martin, four or six from three. Duncan Robinson, two of three. You know, Gabe Vincent two of three. You, these guys uh, were not afraid of the moment. They stepped up, and even in a Game 7, in a hostile environment, they, uh, you know, the, bright, the lights weren't too bright. So I was really impressed with those guys and their shooting. But, uh, yeah, I don't think you can abandon the three. I think you just have to hope they start falling, and especially when you have guys, like a Jason Tatum, a Jalen Brown. You know, you hope these guys can get hot eventually and that can, you know, kind of shift the game. But, yeah, a very, very frustrating performance if you're a Boston fan.
3: Caleb Martin looked like he was the best player in the world for like three minutes there. <laughs> I was like, this guy, he's going to get paid this offseason for sure. Yeah. But shifting gears, Alex, to the NBA Finals, now we know the matchup. It'll be Nuggets and Heat. You know, the Heat obviously will be – probably gas going into that first game and also going into elevation. But I know I would assume your pick and everyone's pick (laughs) would be the Nuggets. But um, is there a way for the Heat to make this interesting, considering maybe what they can do schematically on defense with a guy like Bam, who is versatile, but maybe still, I don't know, just not as big to slow down Jokic if anybody can slow down Jokic because he's looking like the best player in the world.
4: Yeah, you know, I, I think this is uh, this is really tough uh, for Miami. Um, they've had an incredible run. I mean, I don't think anyone thought they would get here, except for probably people in that building, but to go from being the eighth seed uh, and then now making the finals, and then just you, you look at how they've played. I mean, uh, this team looks totally different than what we saw during the regular season. You know, they've been easily the one of the best teams and you know over the last 45 days and just everyone's elevated their game and um you know their their role players have stepped up Jimmy Butler's been incredible you know it's been an incredible run but I think they're gonna have a really hard time against Denver and I, I think you make a good point had they been able to close this out in four or five games uh you know that would have been huge for them because they would have also had uh you know the the week plus off where they could have been uh, you know, resting and and scheming and things like that. But now, you know, they come in after a game seven where they're exhausted. Uh, they go into the high altitude. Denver's been off for nine days. I, I mean, that's going to be really tough, especially, you know, Michael blone's a really good coach. You know, he's had a lot of time to figure things out. Uh, you know, those guys are well-rested. You know, maybe game one we see they're a bit rusty or, uh, you know, maybe that time off could impact them a bit. But I, I just think this Denver team is too good. Uh, I'll be honest, I did not pick them to go to the NBA Finals entering this postseason, but uh, I underestimated them for sure, especially their defense. They were incredible in that Sun series. Uh, they just not only have you know terrific star players in, in Jokic, uh, Jamal Murray, but they have the, the perfect supporting cast around those guys. Um, you know they've done a great job of adding guys like Aaron Gordon, Bruce Brown, KCP. Uh, I mean they're just so well rounded. Uh, they can beat you on both ends of the floor, um, I, and I don't think there's really anything you can do to to contain Jokic. So yeah, I mean I, I think I'd probably say Denver in five or six. Um, You know, it's possible that Miami could steal a game or two just with that crazy shooting, Uh, especially, you know, we've seen those guys, uh, again, just they've been shooting the ball so well. Um, But, yeah, I I think it's going to be really tough to pull off the upset over Denver.
1: Alex, you mentioned it, that you didn't pick Denver to make it to this point, nor did I. I don't think James did either. No. Um, and that's been what Michael Malone, as we've made fun of him a time or two, is banging on the table about nobody talking about Denver, Denver the lack of respect for them. And, and it's it's documented. Like He's partially right there. It, it has happened. They National media favors the bigger markets. That's a tale as old as time. But is our feeling, because I feel the same way, probably Denver in five or six, is our feeling of sudden confidence... For this Nuggets team, because it's Miami, because they're an eight seed, and because they are as is probably exhausted as anybody would be after a game seven, or do you feel like we would be having this same conversation of absolute certainty had Boston won yesterday?
4: Yeah, I think it'd be Denver either way. I, okay. I've just been so impressed with them during this postseason run. Um, you know, I, I think Michael Malone has a point too, just about how this team has kind of gone. Uh, they fall into the radar not only during the regular season but but during the postseason. I know the players and Malone have you know complained that even when they win, uh, you know the talk is about the other team and what they did, uh, you know their struggles and how they lost and threw it away versus Denver actually winning. And it's been the same thing with Miami too. I know the, the players on that side have also complained about the lack of coverage and some of the the things that have come up, like oh Boston beat themselves. Or I know at one point uh, I think it was Jalen Rose that said that the Knicks, uh, you know lost because of the the weather and how it affected the shooting oh, yeah, that's horrible. yeah so I mean I think both teams certainly have a case like I mean every every team they try to foster like an us against the world mentality but I, I think with these two teams you actually do see it in the media coverage from time to time you know they've kind of flown on the radar and uh, maybe haven't gotten the credit that they deserve so um, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens but yeah I, I think even if it was Boston out there with, with their talent you um, I still think Denver, just with how they've looked in this postseason, I would still be picking them probably in five or six.
3: Alex, I was going back through uh, the history of the league, and I believe if Nikola Jokic were to win finals MVP, he'd be the first center to win that award since Shaq maybe with the Lakers, early 2000s. And so I know you've been watching this game, seen it develop over the years. I don't think anybody saw this coming, but can you, from your perspective, just describe what you've seen from someone who I believe is making a push to be considered one of the best ever, you know, when it's all said and done?
4: Yeah, I mean, he is such a, a fascinating player. It's so much fun watching him. Um, I, I hate that so much of the conversation around him has kind of turned into like, you know, the MVP discourse and, and all that kind of stuff, and everyone wants to compare him to, to other players uh, because his game is so unique when you just watch him. I mean, he's, he's someone that you can uh, run your offense through, and, and he's not just one of the best like passing big men, he's one of the best passers that I've ever seen. He can score so efficiently, and I think when you first watch him, uh, I went to, I actually went to a. Uh A Nuggets Magic game this year. I'm based in Orlando. Uh, I I wasn't covering the game. I went with a few buddies of mine, uh, and you know they were they were just asking, you know, how can this guy dominate? Like you watch him at first, and it just doesn't seem like he's gonna take over a game. But then you look up, and he's got 30 points, 15 assists, (laughs) uh, 13 rebounds. I mean, the guy is able just to impact the game in so many ways. Um, You know, he's gotten better on defense. Even Uh, you know, you just listen to the way teammates talk about him and uh everything they do kind of runs through them uh, or through him. Uh, and his story is just is just so incredible. You know, uh, I remember there was a story uh, that whenever the Nuggets were, were introducing their draft picks that year, you know, they had Jamal Murray and Yusuf Nurkic who were there and Jokic wasn't wasn't there yet because you know he hadn't come overseas but all the media just asked questions about Murray and, and Nurkic and uh Tim Connolly was like don't you guys want to ask any questions about Jokic <laughs> he was an afterthought I mean <laughs> to go from that uh and kind of being this, this uh this project that no one really thought would turn into anything to becoming you know one of the best players uh, of his generation it's been really fun to watch and yeah he just he can do it all uh, he really can and I think this I'm excited for him because I really think this could be you know a coming out party for him you know Denver fans obviously know what they have in Jokic but and I'm sure you know a lot of fans have pay attention to him just because of the the MVP conversation and things like that but being able to do it on a final stage and really put a team on your back and you know Take him to a championship. I think uh, that would be huge for for not only his legacy, but just for maybe like his, his respect among among fans. And uh, I think he can get a lot of positive attention from that. So I'm excited to see what he's going to do. He's so much fun to watch.
1: Alex Kennedy with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Speaking of great stories, he often doesn't get enough respect in my mind. But this is now the sixth NBA Finals that Eric Spoelstra will have guided a team to. When you look at his journey, it's always, when it is referenced, the 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 step from a video coordinator to eventually becoming the head coach of the team to getting criticized as, oh, it's like all great coaches have. Oh, it's really easy when you have guys like LeBron and Wade and Bosh to now, since that era's been over, going to the finals twice, once in the bubble, and now once again here as an eight seed. How do you kind of encapsulate the talent of Eric Spolster, the coach, and what he's been able to do since he got that opportunity in Miami.
4: Yeah. I'm so impressed with him. You know, I think, uh, there are some coaches that are good at kind of the relationship side of things and, and kind of being a player's coach. There are some that are, are good at getting the most out of players and, and, and kind of developing guys and really helping guys take that next step and break out. Um, you know, there, there are some coaches that can create a culture. Uh, when I look at like, – there are some coaches that are X's and O's geniuses and kind of make all the adjustments. Someone like Spo literally checks all of those boxes. I mean, he he can do it all. Um, I, I think you look at that culture that they've kind of – Created Miami. And I know everyone's always like, oh, culture, culture, but it really is special down there. Um, You know, there's a reason they're able to get so much out of these undrafted players and uh, kind of diamonds in the rough that they find. It's really hard to do that. I mean, every organization tries every year to bring in, you know, second round picks, undrafted players, G League guys, and get a lot out of them. And, uh, you know, they're not able to do it like Miami can. And obviously, Pat Riley's played a role in that as far as creating the culture. There's a lot of people that have, you know, the strength and conditioning team. But, you know, they're known for kind of getting guys in the best shape of their life. Uh, every year, agents are trying to call Miami to try to get their...
1: <laughs> Alex, we still got you. <laughs> two for two we're today. Two for two days. I was about to say. <laughs> we're we're about a 1,000 in that regard. But going back to that question, though, James, it is crazy to me because he often gets... I think we have him back, but he does. He often gets forgotten about or he often gets just lumped in with, well, he had the big three and, and it, it's, it came easy to him. But as we have Alex back here now on the line, I mean, Alex, as you were mentioning, it's just it's the culture that he's been able to build, even though it's overblown at times, that phrasing of the word culture. It's very real from the top down what Miami is. Wants to be as a franchise, even in the post Big Three era, and the fact they're now going, regardless how people feel about the bubble, the fact they're going again now for the second time in the last four seasons speaks to what they have built amongst that locker room down in Miami.
4: Yeah, hundred percent. And I think anyone that's trying to discredit him by bringing up, you know, the talent he's had, the fact that he's able to, you know, do this with so many different iterations of this Heat roster and different Heat eras. I think says a lot. Um, You know, he came in as a young coach and people were doubting him and there were times people were calling for Pat Riley to kind of come down from the front office and coach this team, uh, you know, like we saw whenever Stan Van Gundy uh, was there. But, uh, supposed has been able to handle it and he's been a fantastic coach. So yeah, I think he gets the most out of his players. He gets guys in the best shape of their life. You know, guys that, you know, we look at like a Caleb Martin, Gabe Vincent, Max Struess. you know, he's been able to, Haywood Highsmith, he's been able to get, get the most out of these players and what I was saying before, uh, before the call dropped was that uh, every year whenever the draft ends, you know, agents are, are calling Miami trying to get their guys to the heat because uh, they know if their guy gets a summer league uh, opportunity there or a training camp opportunity that, uh uh, you know, they could potentially play for Spo. He can kind of get the most out of them. And that's the best, best landing spot for kind of a diamond in the rough undrafted type player. So yeah, you know, obviously you want to credit the players too, but what Spo has been able to do kind of creating that culture and developing these guys, uh, it's really, really impressive to watch. And he's still so young too. You know, a lot of like the top coaches in the NBA, you know, they're older and, you know, you wonder how much longer they're going to be coaching, but uh, Spo is still, still relatively young so I think he uh, he still has a long way to go but uh, he already has such a strong legacy and he's already viewed as one of the best coaches in the NBA
3: Alex switching gears a little bit here to the team here in Indy what do you think of the jump that Tyrese Halliburton made this season to being an all-star caliber player and then also what moves can the Pacers make as far as trades possibly to bring in someone to help bolster that roster
4: yeah. I, I'm so impressed with, with Tyrese Halbert and just kind of what he's been able to do. Um, I, I did a feature on him where I got a chance to talk to him last off season. And just, he talked about what he was working on, how he was trying to become more aggressive as a scorer. Uh, and his agent and Drew Hanlon had been getting on him to shoot at least 14 times per game. So before every game, they were texting him 14, 14 pictures of 14. Uh, <laughs> and basically they wanted him to, to be more aggressive because he is just a, a naturally pass first player. He wants to get his teammates involved. Uh, and then this year, we oh, he said his goal was to be a 20-10 and 10 guy. That was his big goal in addition to becoming a first-time All-Star. And he was able to do all those things this year. You know, he became more aggressive. We saw him, uh, you know, not only dominate as a facilitator, but as a scorer. Uh, and then uh, he obviously became a 20-10 and 10 guy, and uh, he's been so much fun to watch. I think he's, like, the perfect guy that you'd want uh, as the face of your franchise. Uh, you know, he loves Indiana. He wants to be there. Um, you know, he's a great leader. Guys love him on and off the court. Uh, I think he can attract talent to Indiana, too, because we, we've seen when you're a great passer like that, guys want to play with you. They want to be set up. And uh, I think his unselfishness is very appealing to other players. So uh, I, I kind of love what they're what they're building there. Um, you know, they don't have a ton of open roster spots, which is interesting. I'm wondering if potentially there's a trade we could see to kind of free up a roster spot or two if they want to get in this free agency pool. Um, you know, I know they have like the five draft picks and, uh, you know, they, they don't have a lot of expiring uh, players. So, um, you know, I'm curious to see if there's a trade they could make there, uh, potentially some of the draft picks. So they could free up another roster spot or two, or maybe move up in the draft. But um, you know, I'm looking at like the free agents that are available, and it's not the best class. Uh, I, was, I talked to some executives last week about this year's free agent class, and you know, some of them said it's very weak. Some of them said if you're looking for stars, it's not great. But if you want, you know, solid role players and like rotation guys, then it is pretty solid. So you know, I also look at like maybe sign and trade opportunities. You know, there's going to be a lot of teams obviously going after guys like Cam Johnson, Ruby Hachimura, Grant Williams. Those guys are restricted free agents, but maybe someone like a Jalen Williams, uh, a Kyle Kuzma, you know, some like the younger guys that are kind of on the same timeline as this Pacers core. Those guys kind of jump out to me as uh, possibly being interesting either with the cap space or the signing trade.
1: Alex, I don't want to overstate what Miami has done being an eighth seed and getting out of the play-in first team to get out of the play-in and make it all the way to the NBA Finals but do you attribute it to just a tough set of circumstances for Milwaukee? Or when you look at them, the Celtics, the 76ers, really the entirety of the Eastern Conference with so many question marks there and what Miami was able to do, I'm not saying a playing team is going to make it every year, but is there a real window of opportunity for teams like the Pacers if they're able to achieve their timeline, which is getting the playoffs next year to make more noise? Is there a type of power vacuum available in the East, or was it really just a unfortunate set of circumstances for Milwaukee? And they'll still be the betting favorite, and should be the betting favorite next year to take it.
4: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think it's really rare what we saw from Miami. I don't think we're going to see you know playing teams go this deep pretty often. I think uh, it was kind of the right set of circumstances. You had a team like Miami, uh, you know, with some star power, a guy like Jimmy Butler who always elevates the game in the playoffs. A great coach, as we mentioned, you know, a supporting cast that really started playing their best basketball at the right time. They got hot. Uh, and then you had uh you know a team like Boston that, you know, kind of play with their food and really tends to step up when their backs against the wall. But all season long we had seen this team kind of Take certain plays off takes games off, or isn't as consistent, not really what you want to see from a, from a top team Milwaukee I think it's a bad matchup for them we've seen Miamis caused problems for them in the past you know it's Uh, And then, you know, Philly, that was a a great series, but Miami was just playing so well. And uh, so I think it's kind of rare. We're not going to see a team like this where they have one of the best coaches in the league, you know, the star power that Miami has, kind of everyone getting hot at the right time. You know, if you're the NBA, you love this, which is now you can point to the play-in tournament and say, look, uh, you can get hot and uh, anyone can make a run. Uh, You know, it's certainly a nice uh, advertisement for the play-in tournament. Um, And I do think the Pacers could – be a playoff team next year and maybe they do challenge a team in the first round but i don't think that we're going to see most of those playing teams you know capable of going on a finals run let's say but i could be wrong you know we'll see i think next year is going to be interesting for for indiana because you know they they are going to be able to have a chance to add some talent uh you know not only through the draft and and potentially for agency but um, you know, a lot of their pieces that are younger, when you're a team like that, that's that young, you, you can expect internal development from those guys. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to see kind of what this Patriots team looks like next year. And it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, they were a team that made the play in tournament. They might even be the seventh or eighth seed or, or higher, uh, you know, so they could be one of the top teams in the play in tournament. So, yeah, I'm excited about this team. I think they're fun to watch too. You know, I don't think they get enough national attention when people are talking about fun teams. Uh, but I, I really like watching this squad too.
3: Well, Alex, look, man, I really appreciate your time chatting up with us about NBA Pacers playoffs finals. You
0: take it. Whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you
3: easy man and i'll make sure to follow your work anybody out there listening you can check out alex kennedy at basketballnews.com he's got a great team over there and like i said he got it out the mud so gotta respect it man thank you so much
4: thanks guys appreciate it take take care thanks alex
3: again that's alex kennedy basketballnews.com still vibing out in the drive studio i'm james boyd here with eddie garrison jimmy cook Eddie got the tunes, making me feel good on this Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh He always does. I know, right? We're going to pivot now to the NFL. Got my guy, Damian Parson, covers the NFL for the Draft Network. Also has Locked On NFL Draft podcast that he hosts. Damian, glad to have you, man. We really appreciate you coming on because, you know, down here in India it's all about Anthony Richardson. So I guess I'll start off by saying, what are your thoughts on that guy being in a different blue now here with the Colts?
5: First of all, I appreciate you guys, uh, you know, sending the offer and bringing me on. Uh, man, A. A Rich is, uh, is one of my guys, man. He was one of my guys since early last summer when I tweeted about him, you know, just kind of going through summer scouting and watching his tape in the limited time in 2021 where he was more so spot starting and stuff like that with Emory Jones uh, when Dan Mullen was the head coach at Florida. I love the fit of him with Shane Steichen in this, this, this Colts blue, you know, you think about what we saw at the combine—the the, the the four three, the arm talent, all of that stuff. You get to see that, you know, multiple multiple times a year in that dome, where there, he doesn't—I mean, he can throw through the the wind and the, the natural elements. But for defenses to have to deal with that arm talent and that potential running threat on that fast track turf in Indy, uh, good luck with that for the defensive the game plan against it. Uh, but I absolutely love the fit, and I love what uh, the Colts were able to do to, you know, bring him in, get in Josh Downs to kind of complete that receiving core, in my opinion, because he's got a lot of trees, Jelani Woods, more Allie Cox, Michael uh, Pittman, as well as Alec Pierce, but getting Josh Downs to be that kind of first down chain mover for him. And, you know, I always talk about building a receiver like a basketball team. Uh, I, I'm really excited to see what this will look like with Shane Steichen, because He's got a juiced version of Jalen Hurts that he just has to
3: mold and get ready for the season. So, Dame, obviously it's not him coming in and we just know he's going to be an Andrew Luck, and RG3, where you just know he's going to come in and it clicks and he's going to be really, really good. Obviously his college um, tape, his his performance in college, wasn't you know, first-team All-American, things like that. So mm-hmm. where do you think the gap is for him to get to – you know, where he needs to go as far as his development. I know it's not going to happen all in one season, but, you know, he's competing against Gardner Minshew right now for the starting job, and uh, maybe just, I don't know, he pumped the brakes a little bit, but what are some things that you look at and you're like, okay, this has to rise or get better if you're going to be successful in the NFL? Uh, Two things, basically. More so just reps. Like, he was a young man that <laughs> yeah. wasn't exposed
5: to a lot. And you would see that when you watch golf game to game and just snap from snap, you know, from the 2022 season when you're watching the tape, you you can tell he's seen things for the first time. And it's like, okay, you got me, right? You know, uh, you know, you got me at one time, you know, same on me, right? Like, mm-hmm. But the next time you would see him, you see that mental growth in games where he's like, okay, all right, you're in that coverage again? All right, cool. And he's making checks at the line and getting guys set, checking the protection, calling out the mic, and delivering a shot on third and 15th, you know what I mean, and, and getting that first down. And I think it was a play against Kentucky. They, they overloaded Blitz to the right. They they got him where they had like a high-low kind of read, corner route with the with the quick out, and he took the corner route because he was fed up. He just threw it out of bounds. They came back a couple plays later, did the exact same pressure look. He saw it got a quick out for a first down to, to the opposite side of the field. So it's like just that mental growth. But then the mechanics, his feet can get a little sloppy where that throws off his um, his accuracy mm-hmm. and his and it, touch and his ball plays. He kind of, he'll get he get toesy in the pocket where he's up on his toes. And then that takes timing away from him, even though he's got a rocket arm. But, like, he has to get up on his toes and comes back down to a flat – to a flat footed surface to then drive the throw. But getting out of the get out, getting out of that where you just, you know, drop back, plant, get yourself ready, step in. And he, he's got the good throw motion up top, but just sinking and he said that at the combine, sinking his lower body to his upper body and making that one fluid motion that's where the biggest thing for him is gonna be because even if you see it correctly, if you're throwing it to the other team or you're throwing it out of bounds or fifteen yards <laughs> over the receiver, it doesn't really matter, does it? Like so I think that's the those are the two big things for him is getting those reps and and getting that fluid full body motion as a thrower.
1: Damien Parson, national scout for the draft network, taking some time with us here on the Fan Midday show. Damien, none of us are obviously in these discussions within the coaching staff with Shane Steichen and Jim Bob Cooter in regards to where they want Anthony Richardson to be between now and week one. But the never-ending debate here is should he start, should he not start? You mentioned his ability in that one example to recognize a coverage on one particular moment in a game, and then when it's shown again, come back and adjust to it, and that's ultimately life and learning in the NFL is experiencing something once and then adapting to it the next time that you see it. What would you need to see if you were within that front office from Anthony Richardson between now and week one to feel like, you know what, he doesn't need three games behind Gardner Minshew. It really is just repetition. He needs to be out there week one.
5: Yeah, I would need to see consistency, stacking, just stacking performances, right? Like like I talked about snap to snap, even in practice. Snap to snap in practice. Okay, yeah, this throw may not have been on target, but don't compound bad plays after bad plays. Come, you know, come back, correct it understand what you're doing, what you've done wrong, and now compound that that bad play with three consecutive good plays, right? I want to see that consistency for him and just see him get better every single day, right? Watch the body language, watch the work ethic, which people i talk talked to who are close to him have spoken so well of him just as a person and, and how dedicated he is to the game to get better. I sat down with one of his offensive linemen, you know, back at the senior bowl, Cyrus Torrance, and he just told me, like, I love this kid. Like, this kid's a star. He's done things that I've never seen a quarterback do in practice and, and even in games and stuff. So for him to be able to be ready for, for week one and not have to sit a couple games behind Gardner, he's going to have to be consistent, get better, and show them that, yeah, I messed up here, but I'm not going to consistently make that same mistake because, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So if your feet aren't right, acknowledge that. And say, okay, coach, that was on me. My my feet got sloppy. I didn't do what I needed to do. I didn't torque and get and have a good torso turn. My shoulders weren't even, different things like that. Take accountability, show that leadership, and just get be consistent and continue to get better.
3: So obviously they had some other draft picks besides him, although Anthony Richardson will be written about plenty by me more than anybody else on the team, I'm sure. But um <laughs> looking at the other picks, Josh Downs, Juju Branch, Darius Rush. Um, What stands out to you? Maybe in particular about Josh Downs being um, a guy who was, unlike Anthony Richardson, highly productive in college, but um, still maybe a little bit slept on because he didn't have um, the physical gifts that Anthony Richardson has.
5: Yeah, Josh Downs, man, I I think the best – I I did my scouting report for him for the Draft Network, and I think I put in there he plays basketball on turf. Like he has a variety of releases and – Quick twitch movements at the top of his route at the breaking point to create natural separation, and that's one thing that Anthony Richardson didn't really have at Florida. Besides, I think Ricky Pierce saw that he didn't have a lot of guys that can create separation and win. Um, And that's what Josh Downs is going to bring. Uh, He's very competitive. You know, I mean, for his size, the contested catches you see him make on tape for a a sub five eleven, sub six foot receivers is outstanding, very impressive. But he's good athlete. You know, good quick twitch movements, and he's going to be put into that slot role where he's going to have multiple release points or access points to turf and to grass to stress defensive backs. The main thing for him is going to be able to, uh, how does he handle the physicality of the cornerbacks in the NFL when guys get up on the last scrimmage and they're quick twitch movers as well, but they're physical press man corners? Being able to deal with that, especially those longer arm guys that can punch like a boxer. From their distance and feel comfortable. Can you give them a, a? Can you use your hands and your feet to get free from press? And I think he can. Uh, it's all about for him. It's going to be reps and deals because he didn't see a ton of press coverage at, uh, in the ACC at, at North Carolina. And I will say, like I'm, I'm really excited for him at a But that corner duo that 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 you guys have that you drafted with Darius Rush and Juju Brintz, I'm extremely excited to see. Those young men, when they do finally get their starts and get themselves on the field, two tall, long-armed, really good athletes at the cornerback position. Darius Russell, I believe he's a former wide receiver. Mm-hmm. And you start down in Mobile where he actually was running routes for the receivers, the patience. Like to be in one-on-one and the play trail technique when you don't have a safety over top, that's, real, that's, a, you know, that's a very interesting choice because you don't have help, but he did that a lot of times in Mobile and was able to actually undercut and jump routes because he knows he knew before we knew that he could run sub four four. We didn't know he had that type of speed to be able to catch up. So I'm excited to see that pairing whenever they do get on the field together because that's going to give you size, athleticism, arm length, press man as well as zone ability.
1: Damian, what are your thoughts on Josh Downs, wide receiver? Coach Reggie Wayne, very, very excited about Downs being here in Indianapolis. He likes what he brings to the table, but it can be sometimes very difficult, arguably maybe the most difficult situation in terms of rookies, wide receivers trying to learn a playbook, get a feel for the you know the nuances and the aspect of a coaching staff's look and role for them. What are your expectations and your overall thoughts on Josh Downs and Indy?
5: Um, I think my expectations for him is, is to – Come in, and once he's on the field and in his reps, he's going to be viewed as that quick hitting option. Especially, you know, with A. Rich, whenever he's in there, to where they can design plays specifically for him to get the ball. I think about, you know, you think about those uh, New England Patriot offenses where you got the Dion Branches, the Julian Elements, the uh, the Danny Amendolas, where that quick, those whip routes, those choice routes, and option routes. Where defensively, you know, the main thing is going to be for him and the quarterback to have. To, to, to see it the same when you when you're facing zone coverage and things like that. But I think he's going to be that quick hitting option. He's going to be the chain mover, the guy that you know. I think he also will become the safety blanket for a Young Anthony Richardson. And We talked about that on the NFL Locked On NFL Draft podcast. Is him coming in with Anthony Richardson both being rookies? is like it's legitimately going to to college and or going or working starting a new job. And it's like, man, we're in training together. We should be friends, you know what I mean? We're <laughs> both good, you know, and it's like that type of situation It builds that camaraderie and that chemistry to where these guys are working together to help each other get up to speed, and that's what you what you're going to want. So the expectations, I think, he's going to be a, a really good slot receiver for him, a rookie year, like I said, getting that that getting that uh, playbook down and knowing where to be when the cut routes off, right? It's, it's, especially when you're Reggie Wayne, one of the best ever, especially as a route runner. If he tells you run at 12, run at 12. Don't, don't cut it off at 9 or, or, or 10. Run at 12. You know. And that's, a, that's a, a big part of that as well. So that's kind of what my expectations are for him, to, to be a productive receiver as a rookie. Uh, I'm not going to say he's going to be like offensive rookie of the year because I think all of those weapons will be fed in some way, shape, or form. But it's going to start off with big JT in the backfield especially where Anthony Richardson does come in because you want to get the run game going, settle down your young quarterback, and he's really good on the play action. So I'm expecting this to be a, a work in progress, but once they start to find their footing, this is going to be an exciting duel.
3: Taking a step back to look at the ASU South as a whole, you got you know three top quarterbacks in the draft all going to the same division. When you look at... You know, I'm sorry, not all three, but you got Bryce over there in Carolina as well. But Colts are going to face all of them this season. You know, who knows by week nine, we might see Anthony Richardson versus Bryce Young in Carolina. But looking at CJ Stroud and Will Levis specifically, how do you think they will fit into their new environments? And maybe um, for Levis in particular, just the pressure that might be off of him because he didn't go in the top 10?
5: Yeah, I think with Levis, like, it, it may have been a blessing in disguise for him. You know, his you know his tape was not great. Uh, there was a lot of things that you wanted to see clean up. Like, he has the, you know, one thing everybody talked about, I think the Mel Kuypers of the world, everybody who, who really supported and loved Will Levis, they talked about the clean mechanics and how the process looks good. And I always use the analogy, I'm not a baker. My wife bakes. I can stir some stuff up. I can make it look really good. But the end process is probably not going to taste as well as you want it to be. So having those clean mechanics didn't really – it didn't move me when I watched the end result, meaning interceptions, poor, you know, poor decision-making, things of that nature. So going to Tennessee where he can legitimately sit behind Ryan Tannehill and just kind of learn and, and watch from a distance and eventually take his – you know, take the step as the starting quarterback for the future whenever that may be. But they have to get weapons around this young man. Like, you know, they have to get some weapons around the, outside of Traylon Burks because that is probably, I would say, Tennessee is maybe one of the worst supporting casts in the league for a rookie quarterback. That's why I'm, I'm glad Tannehill's there so he doesn't have to play right away because they really only have one true wide receiver that you can rely on, and that's Burks. We don't know what Kyle Phillips will be or any of these other guys. I like Chico Quanquo at tight end. So he's that situation is just a little, little murky for me. Don't start him. If you if whatever happens, let it happen, but don't start this kid right away because you don't want him to, to pick up those bad habits. Kind of that you want to get those bad habits out of him because he's somebody that we always hear like big arm quarterbacks. wanting to the test windows, yeah, no, he'll test double coverage, sometimes triple coverage. He'll test it, and it's like you got to get that out of him. Like you know, it will. I get it. You have a rocket arm. Let's not make that throw. And you know, with Mike Vrabel being such a a uh, tough coach, I think that's going to be good for him um, to sit and learn from Vrabel and from, you know, Ryan Tannehill if he decides to, you know, <laughs> that it's his job to help a young quarterback. Um, but when they look at, like, C.J. Stroud, I'm excited for him in Houston. Um, they, did a, they did a really good job improving that, you know, getting the Shaq, getting Shaq Mason, I think was via trade with the Buccaneers and um, getting the offensive line where they feel comfortable with it, bringing in D'Amico Ryan, but then the, the weapons. I love that addition of, of Tank Dell, who is similar to Josh Downs, mm-hmm. incredible route runner. He's just more dynamic. Like I know the NFL said he ran a four five or four four nine. That's a lie. I don't believe it because um, <laughs> this kid moves at a very different pace. You know, than, than, than a lot of guys, and he's a really good route runner, really dynamic and explosive. But like with him, and I think CJ can potentially wake up and and help unlock Nico Collins, that big X receiver that they have. CJ a to me he was the best pure passer out of this class. Throws a touch timing anticipation, very catchable ball. And he can throw the back shoulder fade because he's used to, to bigger body receivers like a Marvin Harrison Jr. and everything. When he was you know his last year at Ohio State, so I, I'm really excited for him. And I feel good about CJ's situation. They're going to run the ball with, with, with Damian Pierce, right? Get that zone game going. And there's going to be a lot of play action. Uh, you'll see some RPO stuff as well. I think the, I think he fits what houston wants to do um and i think will like i said with will levis he's just in the situation where there's a lot of building that has to happen i don't you know their identity is derrick henry but how long will you have derrick henry that's a violent position he plays he's got a lot of yards a lot of tread on the tires so to me their identity is going to need to change eventually and that means getting some more weapons down there in tennessee
1: Damien, I'm sorry to do this to you, but i got to get the perspective because much like the Pistons, the Pacers are in a rebuild right now. I know you're a Pistons fan. They won 17 games last year. <laughs> we were talking about how we wanted the Pacers to lose more games to get a better shot at Victor Wembanyama. Take us through your NBA draft lottery reaction when they end up out of the top four.
5: I'm probably never watching the draft lottery. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> I was extremely hurt
5: uh, by the fact that we had... One of if not the worst record in, in basketball, and we ended up with the fifth pick in the draft. And I'm just like, hey man, you know what? The best way to fix this problem, you do the draft live. You do the, the same way they do the the, the lottery. You know what I mean, on the news where they roll the balls. Like, do that in front of me. I need to know that this was not planned, that the Spurs were gonna get another generational big and my Pistons got screwed. So next time, let's put it out in front of everybody, roll the balls out, let's see what happens. And, and no no take backs and none of that other stuff. But I was extremely hurt. Um, you know, I mean, not even not even not missing out on, on Victor, but I'm a very, I'm a big fan of Brandon Miller, uh, from Alabama, the stuff the, the the small forward to the a wing as well. So I was like, okay, you know, that's cool. If we don't get Victor, cool. I at least want to be in the top two, top three. And we're at five. So right now, I'm not really sure what direction we're going. We don't even have a head coach at the moment. So it's just a lot going on in Detroit that no one can predict predict when these things are going to be cleared up,
0: hopefully soon. Damn, I must whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
3: Say you made all of Indy pretty happy right there because <laughs> they feel no sympathy for you being in the same division as the Pistons. But, um, just one more quick question about, you know, the Colts and, and, and what they have going on. One guy who intrigues me is uh, Aditamo Adabare from Northwestern, you know, the only guy in, you know, draft combine history to one run sub four five at 280 pounds plus, which was insane, ran a 4.49. What do you think of his fit in this defensive scheme and what he can do from an explosive standpoint, even though he is a bit undersized as far as his height? Yeah,
5: I think with Ado Tomoay, like you get a guy that is going to be versatile. If you want to play him at, you know, at defensive end, in the run game, he's going to do a good job squeezing and and leveraging gaps on the on the on the outside, right? And tight ends are not going to have a lot of success blocking a guy. I think he has like thirty three, thirty four inch arms or something like that. Very strong. I uh, actually talked to one of his teammates. And he's like, he's just such a freak in terms of physically, and, and he's like so. Um, like determined and focused and motivated to be great. And what I really love is the potential of him. And I, and I said this, I think either on Twitter or on the podcast. What we see with Kalaja Kansi, the only difference with him and Kalaja is is more technically refined with his hands as a pass rusher. But the upside for me is with Adam He's bigger, he's stronger, he's more explosive. He can hold up better in the run game than Kalaja Kansi. So I think about put, sliding him down those third downs with a DeForest Buckner who's going to get those double teams. I feel like you're going to have a chance to really Unlock this young man's full potential. Um, you know, especially once he gets his hands and with technical refinement down as a pass rusher, because he has everything else: the arm length, the explosiveness, the, the power and strength. Like and he's so versatile. So I'm, I'm excited to see uh, how he fits into this into this defensive line scheme and this defensive line room. But I think you could play him inside and out, and just really use him in the best way to, to pressure the quarterback. And I think he's going to give that to you.
3: Dang, man. Really appreciate your time. Obviously, like I said, do not feel sympathy for your Pistons <laughs> on that end. But appreciate your insight and everything that you uh, were able to provide for our show today. And we'll catch up soon. Yes, sir. Appreciate you guys. All right. Again, that's Damian Parson, NFL draft, you know, uh, scouts
0: for the draft network. <laughs> Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
3: Still here in the drivehubelow.com studio. They haven't kicked me out yet, hanging out with Eddie Garrison, Jimmy Cook. We have the dean, Mike Chap, covers the Colts for Fox 59 on the line. Chap's been around for ever, it seems like. He knows a lot about a lot of things. And I must ask, this is might be new or new-ish to you, Chap. We have a QB competition going on right now, and how do you think that'll help or hurt uh, Anthony Richardson's development now that he has to split
6: snaps and reps with Gardner Minshew? I think it's really interesting, and you and I have talked about this in the press room, about how you, how you balance giving the rookie as many snaps as possible because he needs them. Everybody said he needs them. Yet you've also got to keep, get the other guy ready just in case. So it's not ideal, I don't think. Normally, you know, 68% of teams know who their QB is, and he gets almost all the reps. Maybe not so much now, but in training camp and certainly when the season starts, but this is one where they got to sort of get them both ready. And to me, at some point, in training camp, it needs to be obvious that Richardson is far enough along to maybe get more snaps. But until you get to that point, I mean, you got you've got two guys, and you know, Ted Marchibroda, the all-time coach here way back when, twice. He said, if you've got two quarterbacks, you've got no quarterbacks. That's not the situation here necessarily. But you do have to figure out how to get both guys enough reps to where each one is making the progress because, as you sit here right now, you don't know who your opening day starter is.
1: Chap, where does that separation eventually happen? Obviously, OTAs will be going on. They'll they'll resume tomorrow. You have them again uh, all the way to the 2nd, and then June 5th to the 8th. Then you have mandatory minicamp June 13th to the 15th, and then after that you'll have... Your you know gap period until training camp, where if at all will there be, or would you anticipate separation in reps for one guy or the other?
6: None. I, I wouldn't think until camp, okay. and then and then maybe a couple of weeks. I don't know. I I tend to think that at the end of OTAs, the mandatory camp in mid June, they're going to have a pretty good idea about what they've got. You know, not not that this guy is going to be the starter, whatever. But I think they're going to know that boy Richardson is really coming along well. Or, gosh, he's not. I think you'll know. But I don't. I, I just maybe I'm wrong. I just don't think they go full bore at the start of camp. But again, at some point, if if he's going to be your starter, then he's got to get more reps. And you know, talking to Stephen Holder the other day, he thinks maybe maybe they start Ben Shoe and then they have packages. for for Richardson early on, I suppose, which I I can understand that. But at some point, if he's ready, you have to commit to the rookie and sort of accept what's to come. Uh, But that's only if he's ready. To me, if, if he's ready, he starts. But if he's ready means has the playbook, which is going to be simplified. More important, has the protections down because you can't, He's going to make mistakes, but he can't make the mistakes because he missed a blitz pickup and somebody gets a clean shot and there's a strip shot fumble and all that. So it's a really difficult question because of all the quarterbacks and the you know the top quarterbacks in the draft, this is the one that everyone said needed the most work because what was it, 13 games and whatever the passes were in, in college? But if, if you're getting them along with – the offense was Steichen and Jim Bob Cooter at some point if you think he's he, he can handle it he seems like he has to handle more or you're just holding him back chap when you
3: look at where the team is just build wise you know they're not a team that's built to win i don't think like tomorrow but with that in mind should we maybe pump the brakes on Anthony Richardson? Not saying that he's he won't be ready or he isn't capable of being you know available for Week One, but if he isn't, that's not a failure, is it? Or, or how do you view
6: no. it? No, not, not at all. No, but, but one thing that's interesting is if you look at that schedule, I mean, I've seen harder schedules. I just have. <laughs> You're still in the AFC South. The NFC, the NFC South is a mess. So that's a, that's a winnable schedule. And I keep going back that with all the chaos and stuff that went on last year, they still should have won eight games. Mm-hmm. Without, with, with nothing else changing, with all, all the BS went on. So it, and what's crazy is probably Minshew gives you the best chance to win early, but then you're not getting the rookie ready. So it, it's, there's a lot of things that go into this. I don't, you know, I was talking with someone out there the other day, and, you know, boy, wouldn't it be great to get in position for Marvin Harrison Jr. Well, that's a top-five pick again, at least. Yeah. And he's probably higher than that. So, you know, unless his team just implodes offensive line injuries, I just don't know how they, I think they win enough games that they're not top-five. So it, it's a really, really interesting dynamics going into this season, how they handle it. Rookie quarterback, veteran quarterback. They didn't – I keep using the word rebuild. That's probably not the right word. You know, I know Buck – the fourth Buckner's field with that word. <laughs> I understand.
3: You don't want to hear that. <laughs> but,
6: you know, they, 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 they traded Gilmore, but, but they, they kept Kelly. They kept Kenny Moore. They, they went out and signed the second-highest kick, kicker in the league. So they're not – you know, outwardly, they're not tanking for anything. So uh, it, it's really interesting, and it, it's going to be kind of hard to focus on Marvin Harrison Jr. when this is a team that can win some games. Probably not enough to, to win the AFC South, but this isn't a, a god-awful team. You know, they, they were god-awful at times last year, and still again, they still should have won seven or eight games, maybe nine. So it, it's this is one of the more interesting things off, off seasons leading into training camp in September, because a lot of there's a lot of balls in the air, and it just I'm really would like to know how they they look at things internally because there's a lot of things going on with this team.
1: The Dean Mike Chapel of Fox News 9 and CBS 4 with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Chap, you mentioned, and building off of James' question there, you mentioned the dynamic that's present within the Colts' front office and, and with that locker room. When when Lux hangs it up in 2019, the discussion was, well, this isn't going to be a tank year for them. The roster's too good. The roster is built to be able to make a run, win a division, make it to the playoffs. They, they can't just abandon ship. They've done so much roster construction over the years to an extent Even though pieces have changed since 2019, there is still a high-level amount of action on both sides of the ball where, again, you're probably too good... Given how weak the schedule is combined with that, to be in the Marvin Harrison Jr. conversation. And, and that's not where I'm going with this because I like you view it as a far cry to think that they're guaranteed to be bad enough to go get Marvin Harrison Jr. But you mentioned the fact they could be good enough to maybe squeak in or, or win as many games as they should have last year. My issue is, and this is not how the front office thinks, this is not how Colts fans think, this is how my brain works. Is it better to have a year of Anthony Richardson with growth and ups and downs knowing that he has that rookie struggle that every quarterback usually goes through and have that out of the way now than it is an extra four or five wins maybe with Gardner Minshew and a first-round exit in the playoffs?
6: I, I guess maybe. I understand that. If he's ready to play. Right. You just, you just don't throw him out there and say, hey, go learn. Correct, yes. So, like I say, I I base it all on the fact that, that he – can handle things well enough to where he's not hurting the team. And and if he starts, he's going to hurt the team because he's a rookie. But he's not hurting himself by not knowing protections or whatever. So it's really, really, you know, a, a delicate balance on getting the rookie ready and yet trying to remain competitive because, again, DeForest Buckner doesn't care about 2024. Ryan Kelly does it. All these guys, they, you know, they, they want to win now. They, they don't want to build for the future. You build for the future, and a lot of these guys won't be here for it. So it, you, you want to win now. You've got to get the kid ready. With Peyton Manning, they, they, they he was much, much further along. He just was. Uh, you know, he goes 3-13. and 13. He lost more games as a rookie than he did in college and high school combined. But he get better, and then the next year they go thirteen and three, and again I'm going to try not to compare the two because they were totally different situations. Right. But but at some level, boy, you've got to get the rookie ready to play. If you've done your work in off season and training camp, maybe he is ready. But at the same time, there's no doubt in my mind that Minshew will be more ready. He'll be more ready to start the opener than the rookie will. So what do you do i don't know that's why those guys get paid the big bucks and we get paid what we get paid to criticize them chap you tell them what
0: to do you tell whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits long live listening to your favorites learn more about kaskali ribocyclib 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if kaskali is right for you
3: <laughs> I've been here longer than all you guys been here. Seniority <laughs> matters. <laughs> Come on, exactly,
6: right, right. Uh, but I, mean, I guess they always listen to me. There you go,
3: there you go. But I guess on a more serious note, when you look at what we were able to see, the glimpses we were able to see of uh, last week's OTAs, what else stood out to you, maybe besides um, Anthony Richardson, who we all kept our eyes on? You know, was it a guy like Kylan Granton, who seemed like he had a pretty good day? Like, just I guess pivoting towards him. What does his future look like to you, Chap? Is this a make-it-or-break-it season for Colin Granson, considering that they did draft another pass-catching tight end?
6: Yeah, the, the thing with OTAs, it's almost like watching uh, a, a, a guy's pro day because it's it's no contact, and it, it, it mm-hmm. is scripted and all that. So you you would hope that the passing game looks really good because it's structured structure for that. But I wrote today about the tight ends and Colin Granson and Mo'Ali Cox. There's seven guys, and they'll probably keep – Three, maybe four, but three. So uh, it's a really a deep room, and they need more other tight ends. They didn't get nearly enough out of them last year. Jelani Woods was was their most productive guy. So you know, and, and you were there last week. Will Mallory was out with a was I think it was an ankle injury, foot injury. So and, and Jelani Woods was out. Drew Ogletree's still rehabbing. I like the group, uh, but we'll see. And this is a big year for Granson because sort of Will Mallory is kind of that's what he is, the same kind of a player, a down-the-field type of guy that if he has to block, well, okay, he'll try. That's not what his strength is. It's more of the run-and-catch guy, which is what Granson is. So that's probably the one area, one of the areas, that's going to be really interesting how the competition pans out because, again, seven guys for three or four spots – that that you've got to compete for that because there's if you don't compete you're going to be left out
1: to go off that chap how tough of a decision or process is that going to be we had Kevin Bowen on on carb day and he had alluded to the fact that yeah it's a very deep position room and you're you're going to have to make decisions like you do every position but it's arguably prior to the the additions they made this offseason, one of the deepest tight end rooms in the National Football League. You no, know, it doesn't make it the best, but they have a lot of options there. How tough is that going to be on cut down day or on the different cut deadlines until week one with so many interesting pieces at tight end when that's a position that often gets overlooked but can really benefit and help a rookie quarterback?
6: Hopefully the players will help make the decisions by how they play, and you hope it's really, really hard in, in late August. Uh, keep in mind, they signed the two guys, was it Caden Smith and Pharaoh Brown? Neither of those guys have played a ton and, and done a ton in the in the receiving game. I think uh, Caden Smith might have missed last year. I think he had a knee injury in, in 2021, and then he missed last year. So it, it, norm, players normally help coaches make cuts by either not playing well or playing really well. And one thing to keep in mind, it's, it's a 53-man roster. That practice squad is like 15, 16 players. And if you don't make the, the, the you know the main roster, the, the Colts are, are among one of the top teams that use in the practice squad. So, you know, a couple of these guys will end up on the practice squad. But the one thing you want to – and again, I mentioned in that story is the, the tight ends really haven't been the factor they wanted the last few years. Now, part of that has been the passing game. Last year, a lot of it was the passing game. But you really need to get more out of your tight ends. And Shane Sikin did in Philly with uh, Dallas Godert and, and uh, with the Chargers with uh, Hunter Henry. So these guys will be given a chance, and it'll be up to them, whether it's Moali Cox really – Having another or having a bounce back here or grandson, or Shelani Woods building, or whatever, they will be given a chance to sort things out themselves.
3: Chap, as far as what's left, you know, for this offseason, there's a lot of things going on. But what has been your impression of Shane Steichen through his first few months on the job so far? Um, you know, we joke about it in the media room sometimes. You're not going to get uh, him to leak anything that he doesn't have to to you, but um, maybe just. His uh, personality and maybe how that's rubbing off on the players you've seen so far.
6: Yeah, I mean it, it's it's the old thing. he's all ball. Well, yeah, he is. I mean, truly, we sit there, <laughs> we sit there, and we we ask the questions, and we don't get a lot, which is fine. I mean, he leaves us wanting more, but that's fine. Just just, just be a good, solid head coach, be a great quarterback developer, and we can deal with the lack of info from the podium. We we can, we'll bitch and moan about it, but. We can deal with it, and, and again, it's. I think it's kind kind of obvious to me that he had a lot of say in in Anthony Richardson. That that's you know that they could have taken you know somebody else, and he didn't. So I, I think this was sort of well, Shane. Which one you want? You know, and, and this is the one he chose. To get you know, he's able to work with these mobile guys, as we saw in Philly. So uh, so far so good, but boy. There's nothing, you know, what do we think of? I think one of the biggest off-season hires was Tony Sperano Jr. But we don't know because we've not seen anything. Yeah. You know, he. They, they made it very clear that they thought the problem last year was coaching because they didn't add but a couple guys, you know, a fourth rounder was in the draft and then a seventh rounder. So they basically laid this at Chris Strasser's feet and said it was on you. Uh, so hopefully Sprano gets it together because if the offensive line doesn't get it together we're in for another long, long season so hopefully they know what they're doing, I, I would have hoped they would have brought in a veteran offensive lineman just because but again, they must think that with a new voice in the room and new eyes to evaluate, that the new coach can get things straightened out
1: Chap, looking nationally for a second obviously you're on the Colts beat that that's your primary spot and we've Always tell you how much we appreciate your work and enjoy you coming on and take time with us. But when you look nationally, with the turmoil out in Arizona that continues for a second off season, and this time it's the release of DeAndre Hopkins, I'm not going to sit here and ask you if you think that the Colts are going to acquire him. They, they definitely have the money to do so if they're willing to spend. But that's a whole nother debate of should they do it, should they not do it. Oh, by the way, does deandre Hopkins even want to come here? But when you look at contenders that would be potentially knocking on his door. Is there a particular spot that either A, makes the most sense for you, or B, do you still think he has enough left on those tires, just 30 years old, to be a valuable contributor to a contender?
6: I think he's still a top receiver right on top 10. I'm not saying that. But, boy, Kansas City, it seems like Kansas City always <laughs> is in the mix. And, and, and Cleveland, you know, being, being reunited with, yeah. with Deshaun Watson makes sense. He'll go somewhere, but I, coming here, I know – I I think he's in a place where he can pick, and I think he's going to want to go somewhere that he can contend. And in all honesty, that's not here.
1: No, because of that fact you just said, you kind of probably put the icing on the cake there, that they can't contend right now, or because there's not a spot from a fit standpoint for him?
6: Oh, I think you can always find a fit for a great player. Right, right. I really do. (laughs) I just don't don't think the Colts would do it. When, when's the last time they've done that? When's the last time they went on and got a big name? And it won't be a big ticket, I don't think, because of where we are, but when's the last time they've done that? I think when you're when you're like him, you want to go someplace that you've got a chance. And he's not looking to come here and build for two years. He wants to win now. So I, it's a bad fit for a lot of reasons. Not because he can't play. Just because it doesn't make much sense from where he is in his career and where these guys are going going into a one- or two-year rebuild.
3: Does Patrick Mahomes really need more help? Chet, no, I'm joking. I
6: know. I know. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's just like, you know, the rich get richer and all that. And that, that's what the great teams – and that's what I say, like with the salary cap, you always can find a way to make it work. Uh, if you have to give Hopkins decent money, which maybe you do, maybe you don't, I don't know. If, if, if they want to make it work and he wants to go there, they'll make it work.
3: Chap, we joked about it right there with Patrick Mahomes, but in a larger perspective, does that speak to why the quarterback position is so important? You know, having that position established and maybe being able to attract other players to come want to play with you on discounted deals and, you know, different things like that?
6: Sure. It's funny. We talked to a couple of the guys in the offseason. They signed here uh, Samson, uh, Mm Ebercom, and then Matt Gay. And each one of them, you know, why'd you come here? Well, you know, contract the money. Okay, I, I love the honesty. I love the honesty. But a lot of veterans who, who've been in it a long time, they, 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 they prefer, you know, yes, the money's great, but they really want to try to find that championship, you know, Odell Beckham, situations like that. Mm-hmm. So I, if he have the quarterback, if he has the quarterback, he gives you a chance. And then, if you've done the right things by getting the team strong around him, and you're a contender, you just go where you go where you had the best chance to be. Take the money aside if you can. You go where you can. You can contend, contend for a championship. And again, when you're an older player and you've got tons of money, this time of the season, you're not going to get the massive contract. You go where it's the best situation to win and, and to chase a ring. You really do.
1: Chap, what did you think of the race yesterday? And then kind of a second part to that. Old Mark James had a nice picture poolside today, able to you know put the feet up and take a breath after the month of May. Ch- Chap, is there, is there a second for you to take a
6: breath at all with the 24-7, 365 NFL schedule? Well, when you guys called today, I'm, I'm sitting on my... My, my riding lawnmower, and I'm cutting my rental property, so thank I need a breather, so thank you very much. <laughs> all right, we're done here. I'll, I'll finish it up. But I, I, I like the race. I'm still PO'd. That it's not that it's blacked out here. I just think it's crazy. You know, I, I, I watched like the last half an hour, hour last night with all the red flags, but that's why I love listening to uh, the local broadcast with the, Kevin Lee's and and Jake Quarries and all those guys, Kristen Aries. They're really, really good. But there's nothing better than watching it. I used to when I was working at the local paper, I probably covered it 15 times and it's pretty cool. But I hate hate to to fight the crowd, but there's no better sporting event. There's not. Uh, So it, 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 it was great theater. But just show the damn thing on TV live, please.
3: Chap, you are preaching to the choir, my man. We'll talk to you soon, for sure. I'll let you get back to cutting the lawn. Fun fact: I've never cut a lawn in my life. These uh, new kids come out here and finish (laughs) up.
6: All you do is ride (laughs) it. Unlike the track where you turn left, this one you can turn right and left, so it's pretty hard to screw it up. Got to watch out
1: for squirrels, though.
6: (laughs) Oh, see,
3: (laughs) there you go. See, chap, we'll catch up with you soon, man. Really appreciate your time, and I'll see you later this week. Be well, guys. Thanks, you too. That is Mike Chappell, the Dean, covering the Colts for Fox 59. Always gracious enough to join us and also give me advice on how to keep up with my lawn care.